Well, this morning we find ourselves in 2 Peter chapter 2 as we continue the section that Eric Tonis began for us last week. Uh, Today we begin in verse 10b, which is the beginning of a new paragraph. So 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, and please stand as I read these verses for us. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. There are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption." For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Thus far God's word. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a boy, I admired my cousin Bill. Man, I admired Bill. He often had a new place to take us on our bikes as often as we went over to his house. He usually had a new album to play on his stereo. And he sometimes had a new pet to show us in his room of the uh, reptilian or amphibian variety, Uh, a lizard or a horny toad or a frog or maybe a snake. I really liked Sam, 
my cousin's California uh, king snake. And I wanted a snake just like Sam. And so I told my parents, and my mother wisely said to me, you can have a snake as long as you read a book about snakes, knowing that I would never do it. (laughs) But I did. And I got a snake. California king snake, I named him Speedy. And Speedy was the ideal pet. He was quiet and kind. He was cool and calming. And he was easy to care for. I only had to feed him once a month. And he slept all winter long uh, in a little piece of uh, flannel pajama that we put in the corner of his terrarium. And even when he got out of that terrarium... Uh, Just a week before my parents' Christmas party one year, he slept underneath a dresser drawer where we found him a few weeks later. Well, if I could have a snake today, and I'd love to have a snake today, except my mom, I mean my wife. Um, Please... I would love to have a Scarlet King. Uh, Scarlet Kings are just as wonderful as Speedy, but they're more colorful than Speedy. Speedy was uh, brown and gold, but Scarlet King snakes are sunset yellow and midnight black and tomato red. But there's one caution when it comes to acquiring a Scarlet King. The owner must know the difference between it and a coral snake. To the untrained eye, they are identical. But while a scarlet king is friendly, a coral snake is deadly. One will befriend you, the other will kill you. Here are a couple of rhymes that are used to distinguish between the friendly king snake and the deadly coral snake. It has to do with the rings. Uh, Yellow touches red, you'll soon be dead. Red touches black, friend of Jack. Here's another one. Red touch yellow, kills a fellow. Red touch black, venom lack. Well, knowing these rhymes can be the line that stands between life and death for a snake handler. Well, just as it is supremely helpful to know the difference between a scarlet king and a coral king, so it is helpful to know the difference between a real Bible teacher and a false Bible teacher. And that's what Peter is doing here in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, identifying false teachers and their deadly ways. Peter points out these differences so his readers can do the same. In fact, it's more important to be able to identify a false teacher than a poisonous snake. Because if left untreated, the venom of a coral snake will lead to slurred speech, uh, double vision, muscular paralysis, and finally cardiac arrest. But if left untreated, the error of a false teacher will lead to exploitation, chapter 2, verse 3, slavery, chapter 2, verse 19, and finally, destruction, 
chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. The former can kill the body, but not the soul. The latter is an agent of the one who destroys both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. This matter of identifying and calling out false teachers is important all throughout the Scripture. Consider just the New Testament, where in the Gospels, Jesus delivers eight withering blows to false teachers in Matthew chapter 23, where in the pastoral epistles, Paul puts forth great effort to keep good teachers from becoming bad teachers. In fact, that is arguably his main thrust in those books, where in Jude, the author states up front that his original topic for writing has been scrapped so that he can address the infiltration of false teachers employing many of the same cautions that we'll see this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. So identifying false teachers is clearly important to God. But the question is, is it important to you and me? Last week, Eric Tonis, um, well, he provoked me. Maybe he provoked you with these words. We are so unprepared for the seriousness of this message, which is really a continuation of what he began last week. Because we're a trivially, trivializing, trifling culture. It's cool to mock anything serious, and this is as serious as it gets. We treat going to church like going to Starbucks, when based on what we actually do in church, we should surround the building with caution tape and hand out hard hats to everyone on their way in. To put it another way, there are things that we think are really important, like protecting our hard drives from viruses. But there are things that God thinks are really important. Uh, False teachers were probably not on your mind as you walked in this morning. But they're very important to God. So for those of you that take notes, here is the way forward today. We're going to begin by identifying the uh, profile of a false teacher. Just a brief little sketch that Peter serves up front. Then we're going to look at the characteristics of a false teacher, who they are and what they do, and then finally the impact of a false teacher first on others and then on themselves. Now, one final note before we uh, begin this little survey. This is a composite picture of a false teacher. That is to say, not all of these things may be true of any given teacher. And in other cases, they may all be. But one thing I can guarantee, false teaching is a sure sign of corrupt living. I used to work for a guy who, by hearing a man's public doctrine, could almost without fail tell you about his private life. It was uncanny except that the word of God had already done the work for him. 
So the first thing Peter gives us in this section is the profile of a false teacher, which is what they are, and they are blasphemous, uh, profane, offensive. And the false teacher is uh, blasphemous in a couple of ways. Uh, First, in his attitudes. Notice that he blasphemes beings whom he does not understand. We see that in 10b and 11. And he blasphemes matters which he does not understand. We see that there in verse 12. And he does this because he's dealing with spiritual matters and spiritual beings while he himself is in no way spiritual. And that is expressly clear. And here's the second way in which false teachers are blasphemous. That is expressly clear in his actions, which are fleshly. So he's bold and willful there in 10b. Arrogantly audacious, as one scholar puts it. And then in verse 12, we see he is rational and instinctual. That is, he rushes in where angels fear to tread. Uh, He acts before he thinks. He is like a dog. He's like my dog, who in no way acts according to reason. He does not act according to reason. He acts by appetite. And especially when it comes to dogs of the opposite sex, as we will see, mimic the sexual appetites of the false teacher. Well, these unbridled attitudes and actions are lethal. That is, they're deadly. Notice what happens to the false teachers there in verse 12. They're destroyed. Like animals which are born to be caught and destroyed, which was a common uh, ancient saying about animals. A destruction that would occur in God's judgment on the last day. So that's a profile, little profile that Peter uh, draws up for us of a false teacher. His attitudes his actions, and his faith. And he now goes on to describe the characteristics of a false teacher, who he is and what he does. And the first thing we notice, the the first thing we notice is that there are eight characteristics, all of which are sensual. Generally speaking, uh, sensual is a term that refers to our five senses. But specifically, sensual is a term that can also relate to the gratification of our senses, even the indulgence of one's appetites, uh, both of which are the case in 13b through 16. So to begin, we see there in verse 13 that false teachers are hedonists. They're hedonists. They live only for pleasure. The Greek word there for pleasure is the one from which we get the English word hedonist. (laughs) The Greeks considered hedonism among uh, their four deadly sins, sometimes contrasting it, hedonism, with reason, the very opposite of the unreasoning false teacher whom we saw in verse 12. Notice, too, that which is normally done at night is done in broad daylight by the hedonistic false teacher. So he is shameless and he is brazen. But false teachers are not only hedonists, they are also ones who are tainted. Take a look there at verse 13. They are blots and blemishes. 
Sometimes the best way to understand uh, one thing is to know its opposite. And so, in light of the last day, Peter exhorts his readers in chapter 3, verse 14, to be found spotless and blameless, which are exact antonyms, precise opposites of blots and blemishes. They're like stains on a necktie, almost all of my neckties. <laughs> They're like foxing in old books, just just a little, or a lot, are unwelcome and ruin the entire item. So false teachers are hedonists. They're tainted. They're also duplicitous. That means they're two-faced. They're dishonest. They say one thing, they do another. Peter states a case in point in verse 13 where he writes that on the one hand they're active revelers, while on the other hand, they feast with you, probably referring to the fellowship meal uh, that took place during the first century communion. So they party hard on Saturday night, and then they take the Lord's Supper with you on Sunday morning. They revel in the very things for which Christ died, and then they mock that death by reverently observing it the next morning. And they don't see any problem with it, apart or together. So false teachers are hedonists. They're tainted. They're duplicitous. Peter also informs us in verse 14 that they are, and I'm using the King James word here, they are lascivious. They are inclined to lust. Uh, The phrase there, Uh, eyes full of adultery, literally means eyes full of adulterous women. And and the phrase insatiable for sin also refers to the eyes. So by and large, false teachers are inclined toward even addicted to sex. Every woman is at the very least a sex object and at most a potential sex partner. Now, up to this point, Peter is focused on the moral failures of a false teacher. Now he's beginning to to shift his focus from matters of lifestyle to matters of recruitment, how he gets his followers, all of which, to no surprise, are sensual. So, it doesn't surprise us to learn that false teachers practice seduction. Take a look there in verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. That's the ESV. They seduce the unstable. That's the NIV. That word entice is a hunting or a fishing term having to do with bait that lures a fish to a hook or a beast to a trap. And this kind of seduction is especially effective on the unsteady or the unstable. A word, again, that's best understood in light of its opposite, which Peter uses in chapter 1, verse 12, where he urges his readers to be firmly established in the truth. False teachers promote a Christianity that is instantly born and bred, while true teachers 
promote one that is instantly born, but gradually bred over time. One that requires practice. Hebrews 5.14. Maturation. Colossians 1.28. That's the kind of faith that can stand against the storms of life. I had a friend who years ago moved to Dallas to begin his graduate work. And when he did, he bought a house. And when he bought that house, he planted two trees. In the backyard, he planted a willow tree. And in the front yard, he planted an oak. Well, the willow tree grew extremely fast. It gave ample shade and provided a great setting for a number of memorable family occasions, while the oak that he planted in the front yard uh, did very little during their days in that house. Well, he graduated and he moved on, and years later he came back to Dallas and he drove by that house and he noticed two things. First, he noticed that that willow in the backyard that one under which they had had so many memorable times, was gone. You see, the root system on a willow is shallow. And so one day, that great tree just couldn't stand up against an angry storm, and it fell right over. Well, the oak, the slow-growing oak, was anchored to a deep-seated taproot that allowed it to draw strength in storms and even moisture during drought. And it was beginning to enjoy its best days yet. True teachers don't practice seduction that promotes instant results. Rather, they do encourage long-term sanctification. And They do this by humbly focusing on God's word and not just a part of God's word like the red letters of Jesus or stuff that they think needs to be said or knowing that ultimately the truth is somewhere in the middle as one blogger describes his mission. And true teachers do this by teaching the whole counsel of God. So they teach about justice, but they also teach about righteousness. They teach about uh, uh, truth, but they also teach about love. They teach about freedom, but they also teach about responsibility. They build up the church rather than belittling the church. They motivate by grace and not by guilt. And they aim for the hope of the last day and not just your best life now. So false teachers practice seduction. They also employ indulgence. Peter tells us they have hearts trained in greed. And that word train comes to us from the realm of athletics. Uh, bespeaks dedication and discipline. As one scholar puts it, these false teachers, Peter implies, are so devoted and so consistent in their greed that they must have worked very hard at it for a long time. And along with that, the word heart 
reveals that this greed is seated at the very core, at the very center of their person. And so it radiates out even to the most minute fibers of their system. And interestingly, greed here has to do with more than money. Because Paul uses this term to speak of those who have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity, Ephesians 4.19. So false teachers seduce their followers into a web of indulgence. Indulgent finances, indulgent food, indulgent fornication. False teachers also practice that which is accursed, doomed, ill-fated by God. Peter refers to them as accursed children. The term literally is children of curse. Peter and those in his time uh, uh, phrase that kind of thing the same way that we do today. Uh, uh, by describing a person who bespeaks a particular quality as a child of or a son of. So Judas was a son of destruction. Uh, people outside of Christ are children of wrath. People who are in Christ are children of light. The point here is this, that false teachers promote a cursed, dead-end lifestyle. It goes nowhere. And Solomon, who had tasted the dregs of such a life, wrote this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, 12. False teachers also practice madness. They are mad. Verse 15 clearly states uh, that they do this by forsaking the right way and going the wrong way. It's a deliberate thing. And Peter illustrates this by referring to the Old Testament personage of Balaam, who explicitly, we see there, loved gain from wrongdoing and was rebuked for it by his donkey, thereby restraining his madness. But Peter also illustrates this implicitly, since Balaam was viewed, according to Jewish tradition, as responsible for Israel's sexual rebellion in Numbers chapter 25. And all of this is in keeping with the profile of a false teacher who is lascivious and greedy and like the irrational animal and creature of instinct in verse 12. Though here the donkey was rational and reasoned, well, Balaam was not. So these are characteristics of a false teacher, who he is and what he does. And before we go on, I think we'd do well to ask if 21st century evangelicals respond to sensuality the way Peter did in the first century. Here are three areas of behavior that I've noticed a tendency toward sensuality in evangelical circles, making uh, them susceptible to false teaching. The first area is speech. Sometimes our speech resembles the blots and blemishes of a false teacher. 
you know, loud and proud and rude, crude and lewd, rather than that which is spotless and blameless, which is the way we want to be found in Christ, according to chapter 3, verse 14. Second area concerns the use of alcohol. To be clear, the Bible does not prohibit the use of alcohol. I do not prohibit the use of alcohol. But I am interested in how many Christians post online photos glorifying their use of alcohol. Instead of it being incidental to the shot, it's essential to the photo. It bespeaks the indulgence of a false teacher rather than the warning of Proverbs 23, 31 and 32, which says, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. It looks like a king, but it's really a quarrel. Third area of behavior among evangelicals that is especially tended towards sensuality, even succumbed to sensuality, is sex. The understanding that pornography is something to be managed rather than eradicated. The deep friendships between members of the opposite sex are a healthy thing for married persons. (laughs) That one's sexual identity is of greater importance than his or her identity in Christ are views du jour among evangelicals and should provoke us to deeply consider our own actions and attitudes in these things. So we've looked at the profile of a false teacher, the characteristics of a false teacher, and finally, uh, Peter addresses the impact of a false teacher. First on others, we see this in uh, verses 17 through 22. First on others, they promise great things, But in the end, they deliver, we see there in verse 17, disappointment and disillusionment. They're like springs without water, Peter says here. Imagine the the, uh, setting in which he's riding, that desert uh, Middle Eastern setting, and a a caravan arriving at a much-needed oasis only to find that it's dried up. They're like a mist driven by a storm. That is, they bear the appearance of incoming and refreshing rain. Any of you that have lived outside of uh, the West have probably experienced this. Here comes that uh, uh, a refreshing rain, only to find that it produces absolutely nothing upon its arrival. That's like a false teacher. Again, they promise great things, but in the end deliver, according to verses 18 and 19, temptation and bondage. That is, their followers succumb to slavery by way of that which was supposed to make them free. One scholar puts it, in their quest for self-expression, they fell into bondage to self. And the implication here is that this especially occurs among new converts who are breaking away from their pagan values, their pagan way of life, while continuing to live in a pagan culture. And that's why an elder, or really any church leader, is not to be a new convert, no matter how uh, talented uh, or how promising she or he may be. 
Well, not only do these false teachers have an impact on those who follow them, they also have an impact upon their own selves. Uh, the bait they used on others become, becomes the bait by which they're entangled and ultimately are overcome. And of these persons, Peter says this, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What does that even mean? (laughs) Well, gratefully, God tells us what he means by those words. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. That is, he ingests that which at first made him sick. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That is, she immerses herself in the very thing from which she had been cleaned up. Of course, the question is, were these teachers ever saved to begin with? Well, just a quick sidebar here on salvation. Quickly, the the doctrine of salvation. Uh, It's something that occurs in time, Ephesians 2.8, over time, Philippians 2.12, and at the end of time, Matthew 24.13. And Paul exhorted the members of the church at Corinth to examine themselves to see whether or not they were in the faith. So that's the salvation of doctrine or the doctrine of salvation in miniature, just a little snapshot. But what I find especially helpful are a couple of parables that complement this picture, and they're found in Matthew chapter 13. Both are told by Jesus. And in one parable, Jesus speaks of four different surfaces on which the seed of the kingdom is tossed. On the first surface, the seed doesn't take root. On the next two surfaces, it does take root, but it only lasts for a time. Now, how long that time is, we're not told. And finally, on the fourth surface, it finally takes root and it produces. Second parable, Jesus speaks of a field in which wheat grows and weeds grow... And a servant says to the master that uh, uh, maybe the weeds ought to be pulled out. But the master says, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. A takeaway from these two parables is this. Wherever you find God's people, you will find those who are not. Wherever God's people come together, uh, Grace, uh, Biola, uh, the Evangelical Free Church in America, you will find people who are God's and who are not God's. Those who are not God's people, we know are not, because when confronted by opposition and anxiety and wealth, As we see in parable one, they drift away and prove that they were never of the faith to begin. Even though for a time they sprouted, even though for a time they were green and appeared that way. And then in the second parable, we find that there were those who looked like wheat, but when they matured, they were proven not to be.
So let me leave you this morning with three things. First of all, be careful for false teachers. Be careful in our own midst. Be careful in the blogs that you read. Be careful in the podcasts that you listen to. Number two, be confident that you can identify false teachers. That's what this chapter is all about. You can recognize the blessings of a scarlet king if you can recognize the curse of the coral snake. There's a checklist that helps you toward that end. Number three, be certain that in the midst of all of these cautions, the Lord will protect his people. You're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And we know that because that is actually the main point of this chapter. And we know that because the grammatical structure of the chapter is what's referred to as a chiasm. So point A in chapter 2 is complemented by the final point. The second point is complemented by the second to last point. The third point by the third to last point. And where all those meet is the main point. And right there, it, like, like the calm that comes with the eye of a storm while cautions and warnings are swirling all around and around and around throughout this chapter. At the very center, in verse 9, we read these words. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And so he does. And so he will. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world with a lot of slick salesmen. And they want us to buy their product. They want us on board their bandwagon. They want us. But Jesus, we want you. We want you more than anything. And we want you according to the way you have revealed yourself in your word. So help us to be good students of it. Help us to take heed to 2 Peter 2 and know how to identify those who would take advantage of us as persons and as a people. And give us courage to walk forward and to be assured that you know how to rescue us from the trials that we face. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.